So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. That's where we're at tonight. We're almost done with the Bible study. You know, one year today, I officially took over the church. Did you guys know that? One year today. It's uh, just sped by. Boy, I'm telling you. Anyway, Genesis chapter 48, verse 1 says, Now it came to pass after these things. Every time I read that, I always want to stop and say, after what things? Well, at the end of Genesis chapter 47, Jacob, he's reunited with his son Joseph. And he makes Joseph swear to him that, that uh, he would not allow his body to be buried in Egypt. And do you remember how they made an oath, how they made a covenant back in those days? Remember? Yeah, it's a lot like the way we do it today, right? No. <laughs> Jacob said to Jacob said to Joseph, put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I'll do as you say. And then um, Jacob says, swear to me. So Jacob, he made Joseph, takes this oath to do this. And it says, now it came to pass, verse one, after these things, that Joseph was told indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And if you're willing to do the math, if you're willing to go back through the chapters and crunch the number, numbers, you'll see that Joseph is 56 years old at this time. He's 56. That means Manasseh and Ephraim, they are probably uh, in their early 20s somewhere in that range, right? And so that's the picture before us here, if you can imagine it. Jacob, he's 147 years old. Joseph, he's 56 years old. Manasseh and Ephraim, they're in their 20s. In verse 2, it says, And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. So this 147-year-old man, whom we're going to read uh, pretty soon, that he's leaning on his staff, at this point in his life. And, and uh, you know, maybe he's using that staff right now to prop himself up. Maybe he's using that staff to stabilize himself as he sits on the edge of the bed. But it says, then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. So Jacob, he's remembering this amazing encounter that he had as a younger man with the Lord. He's referring back to the events of his salvation experience when he met the Lord. And if you'll remember, he, he flees from his father's house, right? He's tricked Esau. He runs away. He came to the land of, of Luz and he didn't know, it says, he didn't know that the Lord was in that place, right? And he renames the place Bethel. He renames it the house of God. And it was there at Bethel that God revealed to Jacob this ladder, right? He gives him this vision when he's dreaming of a ladder that was set up on earth and its top reached to heaven. And there were angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder. And we know from the New Testament, of course, that that ladder is Jesus. And it was there at Luz, which again, Jacob renamed Bethel that God revealed himself to Jacob. God reveals to Jacob this ladder and he uh, reveals to Jacob his word, right? And he blesses him. And this is when Jacob was saved. And it's when the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac became the God of Jacob. This is what Jacob is referring to when he when he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. In verse 4, he said, And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people, and give this land, and the land that uh, is being talked about here, it's the land of Israel, he says, And give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. That's the promise that God gave to Abraham. And that was the promise that God reiterated to Isaac and then reiterated to Jacob, right? And now Jacob is carefully and accurately, you know, relaying that promise to Joseph. And now Joseph uh, 
Well, when you read the Bible, I mean, here's an interesting thing to me. When you read the Bible, it's very clear who this land belongs to, right? You know, it's a continual battle there in the Middle East over the land. It's a question that's constantly seen. You're seeing it in the news. Who does the land belong to? The Palestinians say the land belongs to us, right? Um, but if you go back and look at Scripture, you see the land has been given to Israel. You know, you might want to underline in your Bible here at this verse that's been given to Israel as an everlasting possession. The Bible makes it clear that the land is an everlasting possession given to Israel by God. Verse 5, and now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. <laughs> you know what? I think that that's what's referred to as chutzpah. You know, I mean, Jacob's really bold here. He says, you know, those two boys you got, they're mine now. And, uh, you know, he says, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. You know, there's a little bit of a giving away here as to where we're going in this chapter, just by the fact that Jacob mentions to Joseph's, or, uh, mentions Joseph's sons. He refers to them as Ephraim and Manasseh, because Manasseh was the firstborn. And Jacob is already beginning to refer to um, Ephraim first, ahead of Manasseh. So it's kind of a giveaway where we're going in this chapter. But very boldly, Jacob says, your two boys, Joseph, they're mine now. Just like Reuben and Simeon are mine, uh, they're mine too. He says, verse 6, your offspring whom you begat or beget after them shall be yours. They will be called by my name and their brothers uh, by the name, sorry, they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So what Jacob is saying here is your future sons, they're going to receive an inheritance through or as part of the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. That's what he's saying. You know, Ephraim and Manasseh is mine and your future sons will receive their inheritance through them. Verse 7, but as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, where there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And it seems as if Jacob is saying here, I would have had more sons by Rachel, but she died. So now your two sons, they're mine right? You can have more sons. You can have other sons, but these two are mine. And then it's kind of funny to me. I mean, the Bible cracks me up. Sometimes it's like reading a comic book because you know what? He says all this. And then he says, verse eight says, then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Right? I mean, you have to remember Jacob's 147 years old. You know, he saw them, you know, uh, but we're going to learn here in a minute that he barely saw them because his eyesight is failing, right? But Jacob, he's, he's talking about the boys, they're mine. He sees Joseph's two boys and he says, hey, man, who are these guys? What are they? This is a private conversation. What are they doing here? Right in verse nine, and Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face. I, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. Now you might remember right back in Genesis 42, verse 36, 17 years ago, Jacob was crying out, all things are against me, right? Joseph is dead. Simeon, I mean, he probably is dead too now. And uh, you want to take Benjamin back to Egypt? Everything is against me. But everything wasn't against him. Everything wasn't against him. And, and Jacob is reflecting on that now, right? He says in verse 11, basically he says, I never thought I would ever see your face again. But now God has shown me your offspring. He's shown me your boys. And you know, it just stirs the question in my heart. How good is God? How good is our God? I mean, he's that good. 
Jacob is 40, uh, 147 years old now, and he spent the last 17 years uh, of his life watching Jacob's, uh, Joseph's boys grow up. And boy, I tell you what, having grandsons and watching them grow, I'm so looking forward to seeing my grandsons grow up. I'm already just so deeply in love with them. But Jacob, he could have never imagined how good God uh, has been to him. He could have never imagined it. Verse 12, so Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down uh, with his face to the earth. And so the picture is as they come into the presence of Jake, uh, Jacob, Joseph bows down right before Jacob in referen a reverence to him with his two boys, one on each side of Joseph. In verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, right? And Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand and brought them near. And so uh, Ephraim is on Joseph's right side and Manasseh's on Joseph's left side. So when Jacob puts his hand out, he puts his right hand on Manasseh. That's the way Joseph places the boys right before Jacob. Again, Manasseh, the firstborn, in front of Jacob's right hand. Now, the right hand in the Bible, um, you know, it always carries with it the idea of the favored position, right? Because generally speaking, the right hand is the hand of strength. It's the hand of skill. The right hand is associated with God's strength. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down Exodus 15.6. It's associated with God's favor, uh, Psalm 16.11. And it's associated with God's help, um, Psalm 20, verse 6. And because it's associated with those things, that's why Jesus is described as sitting at the right hand of God the Father in Mark uh, 14, 62, right? And Joseph places Ephraim then in front of Jacob's left hand, right? And Joseph bows before Jacob as he brings his boys before his father. Verse 14, then Israel stretched out his hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And we just see, you know, just this old Jacob here, this old man, right? The boys are placed before him, and he goes to lay his hands on them and bless them, and he switches his hands. That's what's going on here. He crosses his hands when he puts the blessing on the two boys. And in just a minute, we're going to see Jacob bless these two boys. But isn't it an interesting picture here? We see here a picture of the cross. He crosses his hands when he blesses them. And isn't it an interesting picture? As he crosses his hands, he places the blessing on the younger Ephraim, uh, the younger of the two, right? Declaring the older shall serve the younger. The blessing was to go, the blessing was supposed to go on the older of the two. And Joseph, very clearly, he orchestrates this uh, situation so his dad will place his, his, his right hand on Manasseh's head. He's trying to just set it up so his dad doesn't have to think much. He just places his hand, but instead... Israel crosses his hands. And there at the cross, as he pronounces the blessing, he blesses uh, the younger of the two. The blessing is on the younger. Instead of crossing his hands, right? Uh, instead of just putting his hands out, he crosses them and, and blesses the younger. And you know, the picture is this. He pronounces the blessing on the younger, you know, and what's being declared here, and we're going to read about it in a minute, is that the younger is going to be greater than the older. The older is going to serve the younger. And what an interesting picture this is of the cross again, that the older is going to serve the younger. Um, it's when you come to the cross of Calvary, the the, that's where the declaration is given that the older shall serve the younger. The older of our two natures, right? The oldest of the two natures being the flesh is to serve the younger. 
The old nature is to be in submission to the younger of the two natures. Your flesh, my flesh, right? The older of our two natures is to be in submission to the new man in Christ. That's the message of the New Testament. We're no longer slaves to the old man. We're no longer slaves to the flesh. We've been set free from sin. The old nature is to serve the new man, the new nature we have in Christ. And and again, what an interesting picture it is uh, here as Jacob makes a cross with his hands and he blesses the younger instead of the older. And it's just an amazing picture as you think through it, you know. And what you see here too is you think through it just a little bit of, uh, you know, just a little bit of a taste. You guys can go run with this, dig deeper into it. But what you see is that the blessings come at the cross. The blessing comes at the cross. It, isn't that, you know, something that each of us have found out to be true in our lives? You know what? Boy, the blessing that we have through the cross, it's amazing. Well, anyway, so knowingly, he places his right hand on uh, Ephraim. He places his left hand on Manasseh. And it says in verse 15, and he blessed Joseph. That is, he blesses Joseph by blessing his boys. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. And then in verse 16, just this very, very interesting verse. Verse 16, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And again, as you look at it, Jacob is getting ready, right, to pronounce his blessing. And the way he starts out his blessing uh, is God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. I mean, it's just such a neat verse to me. Um, Both Abraham and Isaac walked before God. They were conscious of God in their lives. And they lived their lives in consciousness of the presence of God. And then secondly, he says, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. And then he puts on the same plane, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now, the word angel here, it just means messenger, the angel of the Lord, not all angels, but the angel of the Lord. In this case, he's referred to as the angel. It's a reference to an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, right? Remember, Jesus is eternal, right? Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Micah 5.2 says, who's going forth, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, who's going forth or from of old, from everlasting. So this is an Old Testament appearance um, when it's talking about the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, it's Jesus Christ. And uh, it's interesting that this is the first place in the Bible that the word redeemed is used, right? Quite possibly what we have here is a reference to the Trinity, just kind of a, a thinly veiled reference to the Trinity. Three times we see a mention of God. God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has fed me all my life long to this day and placed on the same level the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. You know, I'd like to just walk us through the Old Testament right now, looking at all the places that talks about the angel of the Lord. We don't have time but you will clearly um, see as you go through the Old Testament in your own studies, the angel of the Lord is a clear reference to Jesus Christ. It's a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But this is an interesting reference because this is the first time the word redeemed is used, right? And Jesus is our redeemer, right? He purchased us at Calvary. And Jacob says, God before whom my uh, fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them in the name of their fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow in multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob pronounces the same blessing on both boys is what you got to see. He's crossed his hands. He's pronouncing the same blessing on both boys. 
but a double portion of that blessing goes to Ephraim. And verse 17, now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Joseph, you know, his face uh, is bowed to the ground. His boys are there with him before Jacob. He sets everything up so that Manasseh is on Jacob's uh, right in front of his right hand and Ephraim's right in front of his left hand. And Jacob is pronouncing the blessing. Joseph's on his face and he looks up and he sees what's happening. And it says that it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand, removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Ephraim was the younger of the two boys. Jacob, uh, Jacob's right hand wasn't supposed to be on Ephraim. Dad, you're blowing it. It's supposed to be on Manasseh. So he took hold of his father's hand and removed it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will bless saying, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And so that was a common greeting, greeting, a common blessing in Israel. May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. In verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So uh, you look at this passage and we see this whole event. It just just displeases Joseph. It displeases him that, you know, that his father did this. And as we read through uh, this, we need to come to the lesson. We need to understand the, the lesson here. We need to realize that first, God is not always moving in the ways we want him to move. He doesn't always go along with the plans that we make. You know that's true. This, you guys all could say amen. <laughs> I know, it's true. Maybe the second thing, maybe we shouldn't always try to orchestrate everything, right? So often we try to get everything set up just right. We try to get everything in place. But that may not be the way that God wants to move. Isaiah 55, 8, 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are, my, are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, we can save ourselves a lot of frustration just by letting God be God. Right? So often people try to orchestrate things. They try to plan things, you know, thinking through every little step. You know, they try to put everything together. They don't want to miss any, anything. They just want it to be just right. And then God does something totally different. And they can be like J uh, Joseph in that moment. And they can be displeased by the way things begin to play out. And again, we need to allow God to be God. And I'm not saying in, in, in any stretch of the imagination, I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. We need to be responsible, right? But we need to allow the Lord latitude to go a different direction if that's what he wants to do in our lives, right? And we need to be able to flow with it, not to hold so tightly on our plans or, or our ideas that it hurts when he pries his fingers off of them. You know, that's not what I'm looking for in life personally. You know, and in this vein and in this kind of idea, we need to realize verse 21, Jacob says to Joseph, God will be with you and bring you back into the land of your fathers. Now, I can just imagine how encouraging that must have been. That must have been very encouraging. But do you know when God brought Joseph back to the land? 400 years later. 400 years later, God's ways were probably not exactly the way Joseph was anticipating it to happen, right? Joseph's probably like, 
great. God's, God is going to be with me. I'm going back to the land. Dad's prophesied it. Dad said it. I can't wait. I'll start packing my bags. And the Lord was with Joseph very much so, very much so, right? But I'm sure Joseph never imagined how he would get, uh, how the Lord would get him back into the land, right? Well, it was in a coffin, right? That's how the book of Genesis is going to end. And we need to learn, you know, that God's ways are often very, very different than our ways. Looking back, they're always better than our ways. I mean, there's no question about that, right? We, we work to orchestrate things. We work to get everything just set up just right. And we expect God to move in certain ways. Um, I don't know if you've ever been this way where you just explain it to God. You know, God, if you do X, Y, and Z, then, you know, these things are going to fall in line. And then I could do this. And you know what? Break. Let's go. <laughs> you know? But God oftentimes has something totally different, totally unexpected that's on his mind. His ways are not our ways. And sometimes his timing is also very different from our timing, right? His timing is almost always completely different than what I think it should be, you know? Uh, I know I'm, I'm uh, you know, you guys don't understand what I'm talking about. You know, you guys are all yielded and all that. But you know what? We need to just be very careful. You know, that's the point. We need to be completely yielded to the Lord so we can avoid being displeased when he wants to do something else, when he wants to go in a different direction. We should never allow ourselves. We should never start down the road that will ultimately bring us to that place where we're displeased over how or when uh, God carries out his plan. Well, the chapter ends with Jacob mentioning that he's given an extra portion to Joseph. And what's being said here is that the blessing of the firstborn is given to Joseph instead of Reuben. Okay? So keep your finger here. Turn to 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 5. Happens to be... Um, I'm going to turn there real quick because it happens to be, it was my devotions this morning. First uh, Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. It's the cross-reference. You don't want to miss it. You're going to want to turn there. First Chronicles chapter 5 is a commentary on what we're reading here. And we read there, First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. And we're going to read about this when we turn back to Genesis. But it says... Uh, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. The blessing that came with the birthright, that double portion that came along with that inheritance, went to Joseph instead of going to Reuben. Reuben was the firstborn. He should have received that double portion of the inheritance. But because of his sin, because of his sin, he missed out on that inheritance. Because of his sin, he missed out on the blessing of the father and he missed out on the birthright. In Genesis 49, we continue. Jacob is 147 years old and with uh, some of the last breaths of Jacob's life, that's what we're reading here in Genesis 49. Some of his last, last breaths. We read verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So again, you want to just picture uh, what's going on now, if you can, just see it in your mind. The 12 sons, right? Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel being uh, represented by the boys. They all come and they all stand before their father. And Jacob says, verse 2, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And, and again, you can almost just kind of picture it in your mind. The boys are there, and, and Jacob just begins to, to look at his boys. He just scans the room, and he's looking at the boys. And he comes to Reuben, and he says, verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, 
and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. And I wonder if, you know, if you looked at Reuben at this point, I mean, is he standing tall? Is his chest all out there like, hey, man, you know what? That's pretty good, isn't it? You other guys hear what dad's saying about me, right? I'm dad's might. I'm his strength. I'm his excellence of dignity and power. Are you guys hearing this? You know? And Jacob then continues in how Reuben's countenance must have just fallen in shame when Jacob said, verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Some 40 years earlier, back in Genesis 35, 22, Reuben went into Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah. He goes into her and he has a sexual encounter with her. And he went into his father's wife. And Jacob heard of it at the time, but he didn't say anything about it back then. And now it's 40 years later, and Reuben's sin has found him out. He had 40 years to repent of his sin. There's no record of, of Reuben repenting at all. And maybe he, he did repent because he thought, you know what? I got away with it. Nobody needs to know. You know what? No one will ever know. But here, his sin finally catches up to him. And that's the way sin is. It always is going to catch up with us, right? No one ever gets away with anything. Numbers 32.23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. Galatians 6.7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Reuben is reaping the consequences of his actions right now, right? And his father says, you are unstable as water. You will not excel because you went up to my couch, right? And what a tragedy this is. As we finish the book of Genesis, I mean, what a tragedy. For a few fleeting moments of pleasure, Reuben gave up the blessings that God had for him. For a few fleeting moments of selfish, selfish gratification, Reuben sacrificed the blessings that God had for him. And what a picture that is of sexual sin. It's a picture of all sin, but especially sexual sin, how it can destroy your entire future, right? It's not worth it. Sexual sin is more destructive than a person can imagine. And here we see how a few fleeting moments of selfish gratification ended up destroying Reuben's future. Reuben didn't excel. Reuben never rose to a prominent role within the nation of Israel. In fact, Reuben, when you continue to study through the Old Testament, you see that Reuben settles on the wrong side of the Jordan, right? He never even went into the promised land. And as you continue to study through, you see that the Assyrians came and took the northern tribes. When they came and took the northern tribes of Israel into captivity, Reuben was one of the first tribes led into captivity by Tiglath-Pileser in 722 BC, just as Jacob prophesied Reuben didn't excel. It's amazing, this prophecy over the boys, how they just... It, they came to pass exactly as he prophesied. Verse 5 and 6, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let my soul not, uh, let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. And again, you go back to Genesis 34, and it was Simeon and Levi's sister who was raped. Right? Shechem was the guy that raped Dinah, right? Their sister. And the boys, Simeon and Levi, they made a, a, an agreement with Shechem. They said, Yeah, you know, if you guys are willing to be circumcised, then sure, why not? You know, we'll marry your wives, uh, your daughters, and you, your men can take our wives as, uh, our daughters as wives. 
Shechem, he really wanted Dinah as his wife, right? And so he sells the whole city on this idea to get circumcised. I mean, you know what? He must have been one heck of a salesman. And if you got a car lot, you want Shechem working for you. And then on the third day, it was Simeon and Levi who took their swords, went in and killed every uh, one of the men of Shechem, just slaughtered them. And the man that is being uh, talked about here, uh, when uh, Jacob says that they slew a man, that man they slew was Shechem. That's what he's talking about. That's what Jacob is referring to when he said, for in their anger they slew a man, verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Neither uh, Levi or Simeon uh, received their own territory. Their inheritance was among the other tribes when the promised land was divided up. And not only is this interesting in, in that it happened exactly as uh, Jacob prophesied, but it's amazing to see how God extended grace to Levi. Right? I mean, boy, as you're studying through the word, you always want to have your eyes open for the grace of God. It says here that he'll divide them and scatter them, uh, but he showed amazing grace to Levi. Remember, it's Levi's descendants that were given the priesthood, right? They were given the privilege of service to God in the tabernacle. Levi's sin affected his inheritance. It affected his whole lineage, but it's through God's grace that, that, he, that he received, that his descendants received something that they never deserved. And that's the privilege of serving God. You know what? It's not a right of ours to serve God. It's a privilege, right? They had the privilege of serving God in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And you know, the most amazing privilege of all in my mind, they were the tribe that dwelt closest to the physical presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. They were the ones that saw the glory of God in the tabernacle with their own eyes, the Shekinah glory, right? There in the tabernacle, later in the temple. What a picture of grace it is here. It's so beautiful. God's undeserved, unmerited favor poured out on Levi, poured out on us. And then Jacob moves to Judah. And I bet, you know, Judah's listening to um, these things his dad has been saying to his brothers, thinking, oh, great, I'm next. <laughs> this isn't going to be good at all. And Judah, he's probably thinking that because he's the one that came up with the idea to sell Joseph, right? And Judah, he also was involved in sexual immorality. Remember Genesis 38? Remember Tamar and the events there? You know, and I bet, you know, Judah's head is just hung low, too embarrassed to even look up, look his dad in his eyes. And in verse 8, Jacob says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And you may remember that there was a change that occurred in Judah's life. He repented. He had acknowledged his sin to God. And here uh, we see incredible blessings flowing into Judah's life because of the change that God has wrought in his life as a result of his repentance of his sin. Judah was transformed. He was completely a different man. You remember how he pleaded with the governor of Egypt. It happened to be Joseph, but he didn't know it. And he pleaded with the governor of Egypt that he would be kept in, instead of, in exchange of, Benjamin when uh, he was to be taken as a slave. He pleaded. He was a changed man. And you see the grace that God has poured out upon him because the tribe of Judah is the tribe the Manasseh, uh, sorry, the Messiah will come into the world through, right? All of these comments that Jacob directs towards Judah, I, I strongly believe that they're prophetic in, in um, reference of the Messiah, right? He continues, and you are he whom your brothers shall praise. 
Ultimately, again, it speaks of the Messiah. You shall be on the neck of your enemies. And again, I think it's a, a reference to the ultimate victory that Jesus won on the cross. And your father's children shall bow down to you. Again, ultimately to be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation when the Jews turn to Jesus and bow before him and receive him as um, their Messiah. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp, could also be translated a lion's cub, right? It's not the focus of his comments. Judah's a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Again, this is all fulfilled in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, Jesus is seen as the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Going back to this prophecy. Judah is the lion's cub, but Jesus is the lion. Jesus is the lion that Jacob is prophesying about. Continues on, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, again, this is, a, this is an interesting prophecy. The scepter speaks of the rule of Israel, right? And this, it says that the scepter, the scepter shall not depart from Israel until Shiloh comes. Shiloh uh, is a reference to the Messiah. Shiloh is a word that is related to shalom. Shiloh just means the peace giver. That's what Shiloh means. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a law giver from between his feet until Shiloh comes or until the Messiah comes. That's what Jacob is saying here. And the scepter didn't depart from Israel, from Judah, until about 6 AD. It was about 6 AD when the Roman government took from the nation of Israel, the right of capital punishment. At that point, they lost the right or the rule over their nation to carry out capital punishment. That's why John 18, 31, when they bring Jesus to Pilate, you know, Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews, to, uh, Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death because that right of capital punishment has been taken from them. It was only Pilate who could make that decree to crucify Jesus because the Jews no longer had the right of capital punishment. Now, to me, it's very interesting because in 6 AD, there were people in Israel who clothed themselves with sackcloth and ashes, and they wept and they cried out that God had failed them the Messiah had not come, you know, Shiloh had not come. And they thought that God had failed uh, to fulfill this promise to them. But little did they know in 6 AD when the, the scepter was taken, Shiloh had already come. Because in 6 AD, there's this little boy growing up in Nazareth. You know what? This little boy named Jesus Bar-Joseph, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the one who was born the peace giver, the one who was born into the world as the Messiah, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, Jesus Christ. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. It can also be translated the obedience of the nations. People is often synonymous with the Gentile nations. And uh, so to him uh, shall be the obedience of the people or obedience of the nations. Again, it's a fulfillment of Jesus, the Messiah, because the government shall be upon his shoulders. Isaiah 9, 6. And in verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. So where do you read about a donkey and its colt? The, the colt, the foal of a donkey in the Bible. Well, you know what? You read about it during Jesus's first coming, right? During the Palm Sunday, which we celebrated last Sunday, um, when, when he came as a suffering servant. And then the next portion of this verse, I think it's just, it gets me excited. I, I, I really enjoy these things. But um, the next portion of this verse, we read about Jesus's second coming. So first and second coming in, in one verse. It says he 
washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. His garments being washed in wine and his clothes um, in the blood of grapes. That's Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19. It's speaking of Jesus' second coming, treading the wine press of God's wrath and his garments being stained with the blood of the nations, which happens at the end of the tribulation. We also have a reference to Jesus' first and uh, second coming here. He's coming upon a colt of a donkey, right? That's the first. And he's coming in judgment with his garments stained with the blood of the nations. That's the second. In verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, again, this is exactly where Zebulun settled, up in the northern portion of Israel, you know, in the territory that uh, what we would call today Lebanon, up there near Sidon. When Joseph went uh, into the land, and uh, sorry, when Joshua went into the land and fought against the inhabitants of the land, Zebulun settled up there in the north, and they became a haven for ships. In verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. You know, it makes you wonder, I mean, how did Issachar feel about his dad calling him a donkey? You know, that's my son. Maybe it's a compliment in those days. I don't know. Uh, verse 15, he saw the, that rest was good. Issachar was a strong tribe, but they saw that rest was good. It means that they were lazy, Right? And the land was pleasant. Issachar settled in some of the most fertile land of all of Israel. They settled there in the uh, valley of Megiddo. Megiddo. We call it the uh, Jezreel Valley. It's the most fertile land of all of, of uh, Israel. I think I said Egypt before, but Israel. It continues. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. The tribe of Issachar became forced labor. For others, uh, as time went on. And in verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And remember back Genesis 30, verse 6, um, when Dan was born, he was named Dan. And this was a prophecy given at that time also, because Dan means judge, right? Verse 17, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider shall fall backwards. And again, what an interesting uh, prophecy. And what's interesting about this prophecy is Dan was the first tribe of Israel to fall into idolatry, right? Falling into idolatry. Uh, it was like the nation was, was bit by a serpent, like they were bit by a serpent, they were bit by a viper, and it caused the nation to fall backwards into idolatry. And it was Dan, when the kingdom was split, remember, under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, you know, he placed the golden calf there in Dan because he was afraid the people would return to the Lord going down and sacrificing in Jerusalem. Idol worship started in the nation, started in the territory of Dan and caused the nation to fall backwards. I mean, from this point on, you know, idol worship just takes off. Verse 18, Jacob, he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Right? Such, again, just another beautiful verse. Very interesting. It's almost like Jacob, in the middle of prophesying over uh, the boys, he flips the switch and he just breaks out and exclaims, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. But what's interesting is the, sal the word salvation here. Anybody know what the Hebrew word used here, translated for salvation is? Let's silence your phones, guys. It's the same Hebrew word that's also uh, translated uh, deliverance. But the Hebrew word that's used here is Yeshua. Yeshua. It's the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. It's a Hebrew word that's transliterated to where to our English word Joshua. It's the word we get Jesus from, right? Jacob is prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, 
I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I have waited for Jesus. It's just, it's amazing. Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at the last. Gad would experience difficulties, but ultimately he would be victorious. And then verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich, uh, and he shall yield royal dainties. Uh, Nephtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. And then verses 22 and 24. Joseph is a fruitful bough or a branch. A fruitful bough by a wall. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot him and hated him. But his bow remained in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. For there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now, I want uh, to take a deeper look at these verses here, verses 22 through 24, next time we get together. Uh, we don't, you don't want to miss the next study. This is such a beautiful thing. I don't have a, a time to go into it right now, so, so I won't go into uh, much detail, but there's so much in those, those verses there to glean from. But... Joseph became a shepherd of Israel. How? Well, he fed them, right? Joseph became the stone of Israel in that he was laid in Egypt and the nation was built upon him. Um, he, uh, as we've been looking at, uh, looking closely at Joseph's life as a type of the Messiah, we've been seeing it. It's from Joseph, not the tribe, Right? but it's from the work that God has done through Joseph to preserve the nation of Israel that we get the shepherd, right? Through the preservation of the nation of Israel, through the work of God, through Joseph's life, we get Jesus the Messiah. He comes into the world. And it's from Joseph that we see the picture of the stone of Israel, the cornerstone, the rock of salvation. And in verse 25, by the God of your fathers, or by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Jacob is telling Joseph right here that the blessing that he's putting on Joseph is far greater than the blessing that he had received from his dad. Far greater blessing than that which Abraham and Isaac had received. He continues up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him. Again, this is so interesting. And on the crown of the head of him, who was separate from his brothers. Now, again, there's so much. I look at the clock and I'm just like, ah, it's my enemy, right? But the word separate here is the Hebrew word nazir, right? Nazir is the Hebrew word, Hebrew word that's translated into English, Nazarite, right? How interesting is that? Joseph was a Nazarite. And a Nazarite means separate or separate to God, separated unto God. So here you have Joseph the Nazarite. And again, it's just this incredible picture of Jesus the Messiah. Joseph the Nazarite is a picture of Jesus the Nazarite, the one who is separated unto God. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour the prey, and at night, he shall divide the spoil. Isn't it interesting that there are two Saul's that we read about in the Bible that come from the tribe of Benjamin? King Saul, who was a ravenous wolf pursuing David, and Saul of Tarsus of the tribe of Benjamin, who was a ravenous wolf pursuing the early church. In verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. 
And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, uh, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his, and his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave, this is uh, there were purchased. Uh, the field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And it's just so interesting to me as, as you just looked over um, Jacob's life. Jacob's love of his life was Rachel. And yet he wanted to be buried with Leah. I mean, that's just, again, so much to dig in there, but it's just beautiful. Leah must have been a real amazing woman to deal with all that she dealt with, to win his love. And remember, that's what she prayed for. Now my husband will love me, you know? That was her heart. So verse 33, when Jacob had finished com commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. We have a little commentary on these events here in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 21 says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped leaning on the top of his staff. The last moments of Jacob's life, he pours out blessing. He prophesies over his sons. He blesses them from his heart. 147 years old, Hebrews 11, 12, uh, 11 21 tells us that he's leaning on his staff, worshiping the Lord. You know, maybe that was part of his worship when he cried out, I have waited for you, Yeshua, O Jehovah, right? Now, boy, that needs to be part of our daily worship. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul writes, For our citizenship is not in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, Paul writes, And to... Uh, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us uh, from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, Paul writes that. I mean, you can go on. The last one's not from Paul. The last one's from Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, keeping ourselves in the love of God, looking for the, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You know what? It's my prayer that each of us, that we as a church, Calvary Chapel, Truckee, that we as individuals would be living each day with an expectation that this is the day that Jesus can return for his church, that he can return for us, right? We need to live with that type of expectancy. We need to live with that type of urgency. And when you read the New Testament, Paul lived with an urgency. We need to be sharing with the people that are around, that are around us, that are unsaved, pointing them to Jesus. My prayer is that we would be people that would cry out, I have waited for Yeshua, O Jehovah. Wouldn't that be nice just to, just to have that as a cry of our heart every day and then be raptured and be in the Lord's presence? Well, it says, then Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The life of Jacob, man, it needs to be, you need to see it as just a tremendous encouragement. It needs to be just an overwhelming encouragement to each one of us. It, it is to me. And the encouragement is this. If you look at the way that Jacob started out in life versus the way he ended up, how great is God's grace? Man, you know what? If God can love Jacob, he can love you. If God can do amazing things through the life of Jacob, he can do amazing things through our lives, right? 
It's the same grace that's at work in each one of us today. You know, my heart is, is to encourage you and to be encouraged by you. Let's look to God. Let's trust our lives to God. Let's be obedient to him. Let's run after him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, everything that's within us, right? Because the time is short, right? Let's live our lives so that when we get to heaven, we'll have no regrets. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, that, that is my prayer for myself, for my wife and I, for my family, for my friends, for our church. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts that are on fire. Lord, the time is short. You, you encourage us to look up for our redemption draws nigh. Our, our redemption is closer than when we first believed. Lord, I just pray you plant that fire in our heart, Lord. We love you. We want to see you glorified, Lord Jesus. Be glorified tonight as your word goes out. Let it speak to our hearts. Wash over us. Be planted deep in our hearts. Lord, be glorified this Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.